welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. Join Chris and Drew, two self-proclaimed boost pundits with a lifetime of industry experience as they walk you through the alcohol business and how today's headlines affect the industry. Each week, the guys will be joined by a special guest that will help them break down these stories and offer their own expertise to the podcast. So, pour yourself a glass of your favorite drink and sit back. This is the Good Bottle Podcast. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. I am your host, Chris Sinclair, joined by my co-host, as always, Mr. Drew Garrison. Uh, homie, how are you? Good, uh, good day good. tomorrow to you. Yeah, it's it's early in the morning. Um, you know, we had an episode released yesterday, and people are finding out that for the first time in a long time, we had some technical difficulties. But what I love about our listeners is when they reach out to us, they're like, hey, just a heads up. Like this happened, like it's a very gingerly approach to like what happened on the podcast. And so, um, yeah, we know that it happened and it was funny because in the beginning of the episode, we we're talking about how we know how to fix problems now. And then a problem pops up that we had no idea how to fix. <laughs> so, was, you know, you can be doing this stuff for three years and you're kind of like, oh, we're still learning. Hooray. I mean, that's the but, fun of it, right? It is the fun of it, you know, and, and, and ultimately... You know, I think the the fact that people continue to tune in even through our slap assery is is one of the is one of the best parts about it. And and really, and as I was just I was just explaining this to to our guest today, it's like you know one of the things that like the reason that we do this is because we get to meet rad people and we get to talk about stuff that we care about and our listeners care about. And uh, today's guest is another example of that, and someone that. I'm actually really, really excited to talk to you because when you do the deep dive on this person, you're kind of like, oh my God, I can talk about so many different things. How am I going to stay focused? But um, we're going to attempt it today and we're going to we're going to see what we can do. So our guest today is a part of the Brandy Revivalist Party. There is footage online that you can see how how hard this person argued for this revival. Uh, he is the founder of Whistlepig Whiskey, and more importantly, at this point, Bakta Brandy. Our guest today, Raj Peter Bakta. Raj, thank you so much for joining us, man. Drew, thank you for that um, that vigorous, enthusiastic uh, introduction. I hope I live up to expectations. Well, I think you're going to be just fine once people kind of get to know more of the story. So. Um, you know, usually we start off with like, hey, what are you sipping on? Tell us a little bit about yourself. But you're 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 mixing it up on us. Like you have some of your brandy in front of you, but you're also smoking a cigar. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, what are you currently smoking? And a little bit about yourself for our listeners who may not know who you are. So smoking a uh, 1990 um, vintage. I'm into these vintages in, uh, in spirits and tobacco um, by Rocky Patel. He's an interesting guy um, in, the, uh, in the cigar business. And I've just poured myself a glass of uh, Bacta uh, brandy, 50-year-old, 100% Armagnac. Uh, and this is barrel number 21 of 38, named after... Amelia Earhart, which has a vintage 1937 in it, which is, uh, I think, the uh, last time uh, she was uh, walking the green earth. That's when her plane disappeared. Yeah. So one of the things that I find really interesting about about just like your approach is like you are clearly a history buff. 
and being able to look at these different vintages and see like, you know, what different years from like you had a video series and it seems like you guys kind of backed off of it, which I was a little bummed about, but cause I think you should revive it where you would talk about a specific year that yeah. the brandy was from or the Armagnac was from. And then you would also are like, this is what was going on during that time. And as a guy who grew up thinking that he wanted to be a history teacher, it's oh, like really? the greatest thing. And, and I think that's also why I ended up ultimately being attracted to spirits was because it's such an integral part of our history, right? In every yeah. single culture, alcohol has kind of popped up. That's um, right. But, uh, but now, you know, so you're, you know, you've been in this industry for what is now like a little over 10 years. Like I'd mentioned you had started whistle pig. You've moved on from that project, which was, you know, immense success for you. And now you're into the brandy market. And, and I've read countless stories, uh, about you. Like I said, there's a lot of content to take up and the way one of the stories that was told and how you found this was, you know, you're, you're hanging out in France, you're in a chateau with your wife and your family and who knows what happens, but your wife's like, you got to go, you got to leave the house right now. I need you out of here. Yeah. So you jump in your car, you go on a little trip, you end up at, um, let's see, I make, make the right one at, uh, Mason Reese Duprion and Duprion and, and yeah. So you, and, and you kind of through the course of a discussion, you find out that they're interested in selling these incredible stocks of Armagnac and you're just like, I got to make a play for this. And you're trying to keep your poker face straight, but you end up getting a deal that was beneficial for the family, beneficial for yourself. Is that how it went down? Did it kind of start with like a get out of my house, Raj? Uh, or yeah. get, out of the, get out of there's the chateau? The, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an illustration in the, in the book that comes with every bottle of Bacta 50 which has my wife um, heavily pregnant with a broomstick chasing me out of the house. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's only slightly dramatized in that, uh, in that illustration. Yeah. I, I kind of, when I, when I got in the car and head off, I headed off, I realized that, you know, it's like, I'll probably head to Armagnac because I've always had this kind of, it's a romantic region in my mind. Um, and that goes back to the probably the best boss hog. Uh, and it was the last boss hog that I did myself, uh, which was called the Black Prince. And that mm. was, uh, you know, Whistlepig finished in a rye cask. And I mean, sorry, Whistlepig finished in a uh, in an Armagnac cask. And that won double gold and best of show that year in the in the San Francisco uh, spirit award. So yeah, that's how it happened. And the poker face, I kind of blew it because when the guy opened up his chateau and showed all these vintages going back to 1868, you know, my, my jaw dropped. Like I had just seen, you know, Giselle Bunchen fresh off the boat or something. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. Now, like, as we, you just mentioned, like, you know, you were part of whistle pig, you got it, you know, you're, you're out of it now. And so what, and I, and I know that it wasn't, it probably wasn't the ending that you wanted with Whistlepig. And I can imagine that, you know, in this industry, like this industry has a, has a tendency to really burn people out and in a lot of different ways and at every different level. And so you get out of that situation and, you know, and you're looking for your next project. 
what inspired you to kind of just like get right back into it? Because I can imagine with the with the way that it went down and it, like, there there had to be a little bit of resentment. Was it was it now working as motivation to be like, cool, I'm going to go do this again. I'm going to take a I'm going to take a category that people are sleeping on because when you started Whistlepig, people were not stoked on rye whiskey, right? That no. was not the case at all. Like that this was you know, similar to your time of reviving the bow tie, because I also read that about you too. Um, you had this tendency to take on these projects that people are kind of like, yeah, no one's really paying attention to that right now. I mean, is that what you saw with with the Armagnac? You know, and it was it the motivation to be like, hey, let's do it again? It was the it was this what I what I what I saw in rye whiskey back in, you know, coming up on the year 2010 of it being an underappreciated category with a lot of promise. I saw, and you know, the the history behind it of it being actually America's original whiskey. Mm-hmm. I saw everything that rye whiskey had in terms of uh, potential on a larger scale, with more authenticity and more age, and a greater, you know, sense of discovery in Armagnac. Um, and yeah, it was the same same kind of thing. Let's do this again in a uh in a different category i mean if i was doing it it'd probably take a little bit more time off i probably i'm a little bit of like a you know crazy in the work too much uh uh department but life is short and we're all gonna die anyway and i suppose when i go out i want to be like used up and not feel like i've got any more uh any more bullets in the chamber um but yeah, exactly, Drew. I mean, Armagnac, when you think about it, and a lot of very few people know Armagnac, it's the ultimate discovery in the spirits world. It really is the ultimate discovery in the spirits world because you can say, you know, pick whether it's Viche in Colombia on the Pacific coast or what Mezcal used to be, you know, um, the cousin of, uh, of tequila. You know, this is, this has that, let's say what Mezcal is, plus so much heritage and so much age. This Mm -hmm. Armagnac can only be produced for three months out of the year. People don't realize that Armagnac itself is the oldest spirits category in the world. First recorded in 1310, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the, it's also exquisite. The, uh, you know, sleepy corner of France in the Southwest. I mean, in it's storybook, the fact that it hasn't been, you know, it hasn't come to the world is one of the great, accidents of history and i have a romantic love for bringing uh you know old forgotten things uh back i get a i get a kick out of it well so one of the quotes that i pulled from another interview that you had done and i thought it was pretty perfect and i think it and i think it also really applies to a lot of the way that me and chris approach this business was you said i you know when it comes to you know armaniac stuff like i want people to drink this in quantity rather than curiosity and I thought that was like real. I mean, obviously it's very poetic. And I was just like, I was like, that's such a cool way to look at it because there are a lot of things that, you know, that I know that I've had, like, I mean, I've had coconut distillates where it's like, do I really want to drink this a lot of it? No, but I want to try it once and I want to share it with people. And I had a little three, seven, five for like the past five years. It shows you how much of a curiosity it is. And I, right. you know, and, and obviously with Armagnac, it's, it's, it's with it's going through that right now as well. Like people are curious about it, but you know, what's been your guys's mindset in, in getting people to drink it in quantity rather than curiosity? I think that, um, once your, once your taste buds, um, 
reacquaint themselves or let's say acquaint themselves with Armagnac as a drink and you find a couple of vintages that you like, you know, going and looking for barrel by barrel or vintage by vintage, finding the Armagnac that you like. In my own experience and the people that I know who I have, let's say, uh, exposed to Bakta who were people who drank a, a variety of different things, but, you know, people who drank good stuff. The Once you get into Armagnac, once you get into, you know, particularly vintages of different Armagnac, you're, you don't want to drink other spirits because, look, it's just all spirits is an acquired taste. You know, I've said this before. No one took their first drink of, you know, whatever tequila at 18 years old and said, wow, you know, this is great. <laughs> we all developed, developed an appreciation for this. The mm. largely because, you know, we like the way it makes us feel the, and we have this reaction to it, but the, the bottom line is if you're going to drink something, drink the best stuff in the world. And I can tell you knowing this business inside and out and what everything costs to make, this is the most expert, expensive spirit that uh, is available in the marketplace. I mean, it costs eight times, five times as much at least to produce than whiskey. Um, and then it's aged for much longer. Armagnac is a grape based, um, it's like, you know, cognac, uh, it's the, it's the smaller, more rustic, higher end, in my opinion, uh, more boutique craft cousin of cognac. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think one of the exciting things for us is that both Chris and I are big believers just in brandies in general. Um, and high quality cognac, high quality Armagnac, and then just the different brandies that exist throughout the world. Now, you were nice enough to send us some samples. Um, Chris has those in front of him right now. Uh, Chris, what are the ones that that you have? Which one are you going to pop open first? So, so Raj can talk about it a little bit. So I've got what looks to be the flagship. Uh, I've got the 50, 50 year and the 1984. Uh, where do I start? Okay. So the 50 year, does it say like what barrel it is or what, does it have any further like names that, or markings on it? Because there's only 38 20, barrels. That's 22. Okay. Barrel 22. So barrel is. 22. Let me look for my sheet here. Barrel 22, I think is patent. Yes. Okay. So each of these, let me tell you a little bit about this, this product. So there are only 38 barrels of Bacta 50 released. This is each one of these is a collector piece, right? And we've designed it from that way from the beginning, 38 barrel release, and then it's gone. The it's super old. So the oldest spirits you'll likely have ever tasted, at least in part, the goes back to 1868 to 1970. So the, there are eight different vintages. And each one of these barrels are named. This was named after General uh, Patton. And the reason that it's named after General Patton, there are a couple of different, um, the vintages that coincide with interesting dates in history. And this vintage has 1944 in it. Very rare vintage. You know, what's happening in Europe in 1944? You know, you've yeah, got- World War II going on. World War II. 
the, the, the fact that this vintage has made it through German occupation, the bombing of the fields and everything that was taking place is a miracle of history, which is why I love Armagnac. But this commemorates the D-Day invasion, actually, which was days ago. Uh, what's today's date? Today is the... Today's the 8th. Yeah. That happened on June 6th. What That's uh, 1944. So 76 years ago, nearly to the date as we speak, that is when this vintage, went, when Patton landed with his troops and we began to, you know, reel and push the German army back across Europe. If you think about that, how many other spirits are you aware of? How many people have you interviewed that can go in? And this is, this is, this is not, I'm, I'm not bragging as much as what I'm saying is, is this is what pulls me into this spirit is that we have 1944 in here where General Patton was, you know, kicking some Nazi ass. The, but it also goes back to 1868 when, you know, Lincoln uh, had just died. The Civil War had just ended. Queen Victoria was in the middle of her throne. France was an empire, right? R ruled by Emperor Napoleon III, right? The, the, that's in 1868. It has 1888 in it, the Gilded Age. This was when Rockefeller and Carnegie and Leland Stanford out in California were building the railroads across the country. It was the time of, you know, what they called the robber barons or the industrial statesmen when America's industrializing and millions of people are arriving on the shores every year. It is 1934 and as we take a tour through history, which is what Bakta 50 is meant to be about. 1934, the, the depths of the depression, Germany beginning to rearm after the first war. So that the war clouds are beginning to gather, but it's a dark, you know, decade, the thirties, 44, you know, the lights are coming back. There's it's war ravaged. Germany's being bombed. We're marching across, but it, but what fascism, fascism is going down. Then we've got 1956 in this bottle of barrel 22. 1956 is actually it was a very big year in history. The we tend to <clears throat> look at history through the lens of you know war, which is probably the most cataclysmic events that happen, and you know, like it's the most memorable thing because well, frankly, you got a bunch of people trying to kill one another, and it's almost nothing more dramatic than that in the human uh, experience. Dramatic and sad, but dramatic nonetheless. This is the, there was a war for the Suez Canal when Egypt, it was what really when the British Empire fully collapsed, they couldn't stop the Egyptians from, from rolling across the, the Suez or they did. Anyway, there's a long story in that. The Hungarians <laughs> rose up in Europe and the, and the, and the Russians crushed a Hungarian uprising. There's 1962, uh, there's 1967 and 1970. So you have eight different vintages, which take you a tour of over a century of history over mm -hmm. two different um, over two different centuries themselves. The 19th century turns into the 20th century and it goes from the age of railroads, you know, beginning to gird the Western world to, you know, 1970 when uh, uh, America basically just touched down on the moon in the summer of 1969. So that's the, those are the different vintages and um, only 38 barrels of that Bakta 50 out. And this one is named after Patton through its 1944 vintage. 
average age of this, and I'll be quiet now, is about mid sixties. So there's a <laughs> uh, there's a good amount of that older stuff in there, and it's given a kiss with uh, with the Scotch cask. So what I love, and the reason, partially the reason I'm smoking this cigar, I like cigars, even though it's midday, um, is that nothing pairs better because it's got a little of a kiss of uh, of an Isla Scotch barrel because I wanted to make this a bridge for the whiskey drinker to, you know, discover uh, Armagnac. By the way, the Armagnac purists hate it. They're like, how could you do it? You took all this old Armagnac and you finished, but they can, you know, whatever. They can be purists. I don't, I won't, I won't judge them as they judge me, you know, be Christ-like. Yeah. Okay. So Chris, pop that one open and start sipping on that. I'll tell you, as soon as I, as soon as I uh, crack this, uh, it's very pungent. It, the aromatics, like, hit me quickly. So, so one of the, so as, as you're sipping on that, uh, there, there was uh you know, to, to kind of speak to the purists and things like that. Um, you know, that's something that, that Chris and I are always struggling with, right. And going back and forth between the purists, but then also embracing innovation. And I personally love peated scotches that have, you know, that are finished in like a wine cast, because I agree the, the sweet, and the smoke are so oh. complimentary, especially in, in, you got um, it. And, and I love that. And so, but also one of the quotes that, that you gave was, you know, like, you know, why, so someone actually, why are you referring to this as brandy? You're like, well, because I do finish it in the Isla cask, you know, I could have pushed, I could have called it Armagnac, but then if they don't want to do it, I don't want another PR nightmare. And I thought that was so hilarious just to kind of be like, I'm just not going to, it's just not worth it. Like, whatever, just, just let it go. And then, and then also like when you were in again, in one of the other interviews, you were talking about how you kind of came across it and the, you know, putting the brandy in into that. And one of the original cast was actually uh Bunahabin. And, yep. you know, Bunahabin is an Isla Scotch, but it's one of the few Isla Scotches that predominantly focuses on non-peated whiskey now they do do whiskey so i just think it's so crazy it's like out of all the casts that you could have gotten it was a boone hobbins you know cast and then not only that it was one of the few boone hobbins cask that were peated and you were able to see what that looked like and i just find that really you know it's like this the way that the world provided this opportunity for you and like in, in like, cause it just, it just doesn't seem like those things ever would have came together the way, you know, that way for it to come together so perfectly. So I, I just love that. And I love the fact that it's just like, man, it almost, it almost feels like it was meant to be, you know, to get a, to be exposed to a peated Bunahabin cask is wild. Right. Yeah, There's just not a whole lot of them out there. Layer upon Bakta in this bottle. And Chris, I want to get your reaction to this. The, but the layers of accidents of history in this bottle are so immense. Like, think about how unlikely it is that you have pre-World War II spirit existing at all. It right. survives three German invasions. But beyond that, because the first thing invading troops do is they, like, sack the town's booze supplies. But put that aside. Even if it didn't get sold, it didn't get drank. Like you had to have this really unusual family that was just keeping all this stuff as an investment for the long term. I mean, layer after layer of, you know, accident of of history is kind of uh, incredible to me on that. And the fact that I ran into this farmer who happened to have a Bunahabin cast because he lost a 
I mean, it's like busy lost a bet. That's how right. I even, I right. wasn't thinking this. I would have never thought on my own of that. I'm going to take the oldest Armagnacs in the world and I'm going to put them in a, in a, in a, in a, in a most, you know, the most like nuke button flavoring uh, system of all of putting it in a, in a, in a scotch cast. But I realized, I mean, that sweetness smoke combo is, is beautiful. This is, this is not a, this is not a drink for beginners, right? I mean, I, I won't, I will, this is not like the drink that you're going to, you're not going to go from a nice uh, sweetened uh, rum and taste this and, and, you know, it's going to blow your wheels off and you might not even like it, but to, <laughs> you know, an experienced drinker who appreciates flavor, who likes deep age, this has got, you know, it's not overwhelmingly sweet, the um, I would even say it's a little drier than it is um, uh, sweet. It's got it's it's got a decent amount of astringency on the finish. You know, Chris, I'm not I'm not swallowing it down right now. And these flavor profiles can move around based on what you had for breakfast. And now I'm smoking a cigar. So I'm asking, what are you getting on the finish on this? It's, um, I see why you're smoking a cigar with it. It has this really, really lovely salinity that, that is, it's, it's when I, when I smoke a cigar that's, you know, like, uh, that's well-made, it's got, um, I'm like getting something out of like Nicaragua or Honduras. It's got this like great minerality to it light fruit very dry um i i'm assuming that you don't you don't dressage any of this there's no you're not adding any sweetener towards nothing towards the finish right which is i mean we've talked we've talked you know uh at nauseum about this but but it's so common in the in the booze world and you can taste in here that the 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 sweetness is natural. You know, there's, there's no, not, not that dressage is, is not natural. Right. But the, there's nothing added in here. It took me a second. And on the, on the big front end of this to get past the smoke, it hit me. The Isla cask hit me right up front on that first taste. But Drew and I talk a lot about that first taste lies to you. It's not, it's not a real experience of whatever it is that you're drinking. Like you said, because you got to wash, you got to wash out the coffee that you've had in the morning, whatever you had for breakfast, you know, whatever your body chemistry is doing that day, that first taste sort of resets everything. Um, yeah. And so for me, that Isla cast came out real strong up front. And I was like, man, I can't even, I can't even taste the brandy, but that was the first taste. And now on the second taste, it's all I get. And, and that, that little bit, that little bit of smoke really just offers this really pleasant mid palate and finish. Um, one of my, one of my all time favorite brandies that you can't get anymore is made by a, a cognac house known as Camus. They did this really limited run, um, uh, of cognacs aged in a, in a, um, military bunker, just, just on the coast. And so it was just all salinity. Uh, and this is this is reminiscent to me of that. It's this really great saline, light smoke. Reminds me of so- smoking a cigar because it's got that touch of 
um, uh, like um, ash and and yeah. So, Chris, put if you have another glass there, put or put a little bit of that aside, and we're gonna taste that uh, in the end because really, Bakta fifty, you really should let it open for it to it, it evolve after 20 to 40 minutes you're 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 gonna you're gonna pick up almost like it's just gonna be a different drink and in my opinion it improves well, let me go the, let me go get another glass here we'll, we'll do so that. no and and while chris is doing that um one of the things that you've talked about when it comes to bakta is you know one to stock one to rock which basically yeah. means, you know, buy two so you can yeah. save one as an investment, but you also want to make sure that, you know, you're not hit by a bus and you're wishing that you would have drank that, you know, that brandy when you had the chance. Um, so <laughs> as, as an investment, you know, in spirits, cause you know, people are always looking for unique investments. Um, you know, where do you see the legs for that when it comes to, you know, this, this brand long and sexy. <laughs> the, the, um, I'll, 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 let me, let me be more, more specific. So think about what you have, like in terms of a, 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 a boss hog, for example, a boss hog one is, uh, you know, it's a 10, $20,000 bottle. Now that was a $150 bottle when it was, when it was released. I think we're going to have the same appreciation of this or more. And I'll tell you why I think or more. The we're promoting the category now. We're it's going to you know take a while, and we're going to have to get uh, more people engaged. But the sheer um, preciousness and rarity of the underlying spirit that goes in is astounding. I mean, you, the youngest stuff in here is from 1970. That's 52 years ago. The oldest stuff is 155 years, just about right. So the total available stocks of all age spirit of every single category between 1868 and 1970, I'll bet all available supplies are less than how much, you know, just, I, I make this joke, how much Jack Daniels got spilt between during, during the, during the course of our conversation. In other words, yeah. in the next 10 seconds, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. In that time frame, more Jack Daniels just got spilt around the world, just at bars, you know, some drunk yeah. guy just spilled his drink, right? On the on the gal next to him. More just got spilled in that past 10 seconds than all the available supplies of all spirits in the world between 1868 and 1970. People are gonna wake up to that because look, spirits at the end, as I mentioned. This is this is this is an acquired taste. Armagnac is an acquired taste. This is really great spirit. This is beautiful stuff made of wine aged for a super long time, but the world doesn't know about. I mean, right. we just did a poll. 98% of spirits drinkers in the world don't know that Armagnac exists. They don't even know that it exists. Yeah. Right? That's not going to exist exist for ex that's not going to be the case forever. The and why don't they know it exists? Because no one ever promoted the category, really. I mean, you had a couple of like, you know, here and there attempts, but no sustained, which goes to another accident of history. And that I don't know whether it's the character of the people of Armagnac, but they're not like 
I mean, we'll put it, they're definitely not showmen. They're definitely not marketers. That's good. If you want to buy something at a good deal, it's bad. If you invested in a bottle, you want whoever, whatever bottle you have, you want that son of a bitch hustling, talking everybody about it because you want, you want to let people know about it. So your bottle's worth more, right? Right. The, I mean, so yeah. I, I, people have accused me of many things, but being like quiet and, and an unassertive marketer is not one of them. Well, I think at the end of the day, you know, this is an industry where money is made. And sometimes people in this industry have an aversion to that, right? Like they want to maintain the quote unquote artistry or whatever. But, it, you know, I both Chris and I look at it it's like, no, 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 there's opportunity for both. And there's there's room for there's room for both. Now, you know, when it comes to stuff in these these major age statements and stuff like that, when you re, when you get one of these bottles and you said like in that book, you know, you have the story and the and the um, you know the depiction of how it came together. Does it also include like what these vintages like are in it, and then like what was happening during those years, so people yeah, can kind of like look me, through I'm, it? I'm gonna grab that book while what, right now, actually. The I'll, I'll read you a little. I'll read you a little sentence. This is my literary debut here. This little burgundy book comes in every bottle of Bach to Fiftia. I, I, I suppose Chris, did that come in what you got there? No, I don't I don't have that. No, we just we just right. got the we just got the bottles, which is okay. I'll I'll take I'll take my issues up with Meg and let her know. The, so the, the the if you allow me, the what I write in the very beginning, what you now possess is perhaps the rarest drink known to mankind. It is Armagnac brandy kissed by smoky scotch casks. Over five generations, as empires and nations rose and fell, this brandy has slumbered. It represents an opportunity to taste ages past through a liquid whose very existence is miraculous. The, the oldest spirits in this bottle were born of vines planted around the time of Abraham Lincoln's birth. They were poured into barrels made from trees predating the American Revolution. The youngest spirits in this blend were distilled before the invention of the home computer or the cell phone during a time when the Soviet Union and the United States vied for global supremacy. The age statement of this bottle could be given not in terms of years, but of generations. The lettuce, lettuce, the oldest grapes were harvested in 1867 under the nimble and crushed by the nimble feet of French children whose grandchildren are now themselves gone. Let that sink in for a moment. Let us imagine their world. The the planet was dominated by European kings and emperors whose forefathers had long ago ascended the greasy pole of power. The, you know, you like get get that analogy of trying to like climb a greasy pole. They they ascended the greasy, they they, they ascended the greasy pole of power. The, the, the France was still a booming empire. Now, I get into all of this history, and I want to I bring it back to the end because I wrote here, um, you know, a couple of things that are important to whatever I do as a brand. Very much, this is, um, this is bringing it to an end because I, I wrote this, you know, at a time when we launched right in the middle of the, of the, uh, the like, the height of the fear of the coronavirus thing. The, and I wrote this then, and I'll read to you. I write from an old trailer in the middle of my farm. This is in Vermont. From here, I gaze over fallow fields, which though now, sh- which though now shrouded by mid-April snow, 
will be vineyard by midsummer. That's true. We're going to have our first harvest this year. An eerie calm, a calm even more profound than typical of rural Vermont shrouds the land. The world is on lockdown, coming to terms with the pandemic. As I write about this quote unquote new product, centuries in the making, I cannot help but ponder the lessons of history. This bottle holds the finest spirits of Western civilization. Its history contains a message. The, the message is revival. Bakta 50 reminds us of the indomitable human spirit, of our stunning resilience. Humanity has gone through much worse, the plagues, the world wars, the Great Depression, the Spanish flu, but here we remain. This creates an opportunity, the pandemic I speak of, and we need to make this so, for an American revival, a chance to accomplish great deeds and make awesome things at home again. For example, we're, we're now making and planting the vineyards where we'll be producing the things which go into this bottle. Now I'm speaking, not reading. The um, on the farm in Vermont. And here's an interesting thing. I pledge that we will make everything that goes into this finest spirit in the world right here in North America and France. I have canceled our packing boxes from China. Instead, we will make them the old fashioned way on our farm from our trees. This sacrifice of immediate profitability is an investment in America. I hope to inspire other businesses to do the same and to take the long view. And here I wax poetic, whether it be our industrial base, our unity as a people, our sense of being a great and just nation. We have lost nothing that cannot be rebuilt. The history of peoples and nations contained in this bottle of Bakta show this. No setback is final so long as the flame of revival remains alive. Wrapping up here, great trials, even great tragedies, are followed by periods of rebirth, renaissance, and revival. If only a people refused to become divided and see themselves of, as victims, we can rewrite our future, each of us. We can turn history's darkest moments into her brightest. This bottle is a monument to revival. The spirits herein were born, lived, and were forgotten. Long have they lain in the cave. Now they are arisen. They say we cannot buy time. Here is an exception, time in a bottle and all the wisdom that comes with it. So look up to the heavens, to personal ennoblement, to the revival of our country and our civilization. Where we look, so shall we go. There has never been a better time to be alive. Bakta is about the revival of good and ancient spirits. May this bottle revive yours. So... That's kind of what makes well, that's that's what makes Bakta, you know, special. It's 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 the history in it, it's the spirit, and it's the commitment to this, you know, revival of bringing good things back, not just on the you know spirit level, but also I would say on the on the spiritual level. The and that's by you know going back to the earth and making great things and taking the long view and an optimistic view, investing you know, in the future, because this age statement, these spirits, the rarity of it, it's not just, oh, I'm going to drink this and does this taste better than another drink? I mean, I think we do very well in all the tastes, tests and the comparison, but it's taking a moment to reflect, drink it, enjoy it. Don't just stare and look at it like your coconut, you know, 
whatever it was. Yeah. We, we enjoy it. The best things in life are to be enjoyed, but it's something deeper than that. It's worth the moment of reflection as you, as you polish off a bottle with some friends and, you know, read the book that comes along with it. Uh, it's really something rare and special and unique. And when you really get it, you really won't want to drink anything, you know, else because there's so much richness, comprehensively speaking in it, if I make any sense to you. <laughs> No, I mean, I think it's obviously that's a lot to digest. And I think we're getting into a range where we're going to be hitting some of like the things I want to talk about in our top stories. Um, so with that being said, why don't we uh, give our opinion on facts that we've heard from reputable sources? So the first thing that we wanted to talk about was the two new AVAs that were just created uh, in the United States. And so an AVA is the American Viticulture Area. This is a designated area that is um, put together by the TTB and the wineries that exist within it that are going to basically distinguish what um, what's going to come from that area. And it gives it its own uh, kind of certification. The first one that we had in the U.S. was back in 1980. It's really based off of like the French model of Bordeaux and Burgundy and and whatnot. Um, the ones that just came into existence are the Columbia Valley up in Washington, and then um, the Slow Coast, which is going to be down here in California for us. Uh, I wanted to bring this one up because I mean, I think it's I think it's cool that these areas which have been producing really great wine or this is like another level of recognition for them. But Raj, I want to talk to you about it because you have three separate properties right now. So you have the Chateau in France, which has, you know, grapes growing and, and everything going in there and where you originally got the stocks of, of, of Armagnac. Then you have some property down in Florida, which you've mentioned at times you want to do eventually grow some cane and then, you know, yep. maybe with the idea of producing some rum. And then as yeah, you we, just mentioned, yeah. you have the farm in Vermont where you're growing grapes there as well to eventually um, become that. And, and you're, you know, you're kind of cultivating your own, you know, I guess it wouldn't be an AVA, but like, you know, you're, you're adding your own terroir and your own provenance, you know, to this category. And then one of the other things that you had mentioned before um, in previous interviews was you're also working with, uh, and I, I don't know if it's actually come to fruition, but a direct fire still as well, which is something that a lot of people don't do. It's very prominent in like mezcal production and like throughout Mexico, but most of the time people who are you know, heating their wash now or doing it through gas and it's a little bit easier to control. Was that a project that came to fruition? Were you guys able to get the, I mean, have you been working with that direct fire still and has it been more challenging than you ever could have, you know, imagined or what's that, what has that experience been like? And then what does it matter to you to have things like AVAs exist and to, um, you know, kind of add that extra level of legitimacy for these brands and I think things coming from I, think, I think they're great. I think we should get, you know, the Addison County or Vermont uh, AVA because interestingly, the brandies or the wine that you make that you want to make a great brandy with, the is very acidic and uh, would be too, I, it wouldn't be what you would want to drink a bottle of the wine wise, but that actually makes the best brandies. Um, 
which is precisely the type of uh, grapes that we can grow in the in the north, the where we are now. I mean, we're we're way up here, um, so I love it. I think that's a great idea. The and I think that uh, as you're reading that, we should. Uh, I'm going to start pursuing getting getting our own AVA because also with the with the with the changes in climate, you know, it warming up here may not be a good thing in California with the water and everything, but it's good for grape growing here. It's not all bad news. Um, and uh, and uh, you got to look at the bright side, you know. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. That's amazing. Right? Life, life. If you just pay attention to the news, you just get totally depressed. And as for the direct fire, there's a romance to it. You know, it's difficult. It's like, you know, if you want a car and you want to drive across the country 15 times in a safe, efficient, you know, way uh, and inexpensively, right? Get a Prius, relatively speaking, right? Mm -hmm. the, the It's going to do the job better than any Ferrari is going to do, right? But it's the anti-boner vehicle, right? The, 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 but the, it's the same thing with, um, you know, with, with distillation, direct fire requires constant vigilance. The, it requires attention. Uh, and I think it, when you nail that from a, uh, from a flavor standpoint and from a, I don't know. It's just there's there's soul in it. There's spirit. I'm a romantic, right? There's something about turning a big gas still on. Basically, the big distilleries in the world basically have a guy drinking a Slurpee, eating a Big Mac, getting paid minimum wage, staring at a computer screen, you know, dialing it up or down, and it's running 24 hours a day, right? That's yeah. what your 99%, maybe 99.5% maybe 99.8% of the world spirits come from. There's no romance in that. And that's all marketing department, right? That, that creates that. And that's for, again, nine tenths of all the bourbon and all the small batch stuff and out there. I mean, you know, like I, 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 I know this, the, um, a wood burning still in a winter's day being tenderly, you know, uh, uh, crafted there's there's i don't know it's sort of it's beautiful there's 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 attention into it and you know i think that that translates into the end product it's a complete pain in the ass let me tell you the <laughs> to get right because you also you have to get the right type of wood i did it a little bit the i'm going to spend like when i retire i just want to feed wood into the still because you can really geek out it. you got to get the hardness of the wood right you got to get the humidity right the, because you're trying to operate in the right temperature and there's no like, you know, you're adjusting that by basically putting types of wood and certain thicknesses and the like into the still. So, you know, that's a great way for somebody with with a lot of, let's say, energy who, who just wants to, you know, it's kind of like skiing or something like that. It kind of takes your you're staring at the fire and you're trying to get it right so you can really geek out in that particular thing. Plus, you're making your products. So I love it. There's nothing like it. It's expensive, inefficient, and totally romantic. So it's precisely <laughs> the way, you know, if you're spending money on something, buy something like that. Don't buy expensive, you know, bourbon from the guy, you know, in the in the in the factory, you know, widget, widgeting with the computer dials that are optimizing ethanol production in your quote unquote craft distillery. 
Yeah. Uh, okay. So Chris, I'll throw it to you from, uh, you know, from a shop owner, you know, do you, do you see people like coming in for those specific regions that just got their AVAs? And I mean, what's been the reaction that you've seen from people or from reps who maybe who, who are selling wines from these areas? Well, look, we're, we're in California. So we come from a, a pocket of the world where people are, uh, consumers are, are very, um, yep. They know, they, they know what's up with wine. You know, it's, it's just part of our culture here. Um, I, I have people come in all the time asking for Columbia Valley wines, and this is well before AVA was, was normalized and codified. Right. And, and definitely from slow. I mean, we have people who look for Santa Cruz. We have people who look for hyper specific regions just because they want, they want to experience it. They want to, they want to know what that is, or because we're here in California, they went there. It's not hard, you know. It's a four-hour drive, in one direction. You want to go up to Columbia Valley. It's like twelve hours, right? Like it, it's not hard. And in fact, Columbia Valley, it's you know, I, that's what we most of us know of Washington wine, anyway. Mm. Do you? Chris, do you? What, no, go ahead. Go ahead, Raj. You ask Chris, what do you? What do you see like uh, in your in your bottle shop? What's you know what's hot right now? What are people? What are the trends that you're noting? Where's your Where's your store? Uh, downtown Sacramento, right across the street from the state capitol. Okay, what do you what do you see? Like, what are you what are you noticing? What's noticeable? Uh, the drive towards wine is is palpable. Uh, there's a, a really really strong and youthful resurgence of people just having something enjoyable to just hang out with and share. Um, a lot more people are coming in and buying that to take take to dinners with friends. Uh, it's something that I think, uh, you know, people are beginning to enjoy their experiences with each other again. And I think wine is endemic of that. Like, it's just it's something that just people need in their lives. Um, and with that, we're seeing also this uh, new resurgence of of natural wines of, you know, or at least this uh, branding of natural wines. Right. Like Drew and I talk about this a lot that natural wine is just wine if you go anywhere else in the in the world but here here in the u.s natty wine is natty wine it's just it's it's its own thing and it has its own marketing and its own style um so the are you saying that you're noticing that trend that people were going to spirits before and now that's moving more towards wine no i'd say i would say that people very much like the slow food movement, people are moving towards specificity. They're moving towards natural wines. They're moving towards mescal. They're moving towards this um, well-made artisanal notion between what they're consuming. Yeah. Yeah. That being said, my store is specifically designed towards drawing those people in, right? I'm right. not, I'm not a, I'm not a seven 11. I'm not, you know, people, I'm sure that they, those places are getting just astronomical numbers of people just walking in buying their bottle of Jack, right? Like their old number seven. Right. It's just like, it's what people are used to. It's what they go and they grab. My store is not that place. I mean, I have those things that are comforting, that are quality that fit that category um, that are just as dope you know, and offer a different experience of some of those like really large iconic brands. Um, and we feel like they've got, they've got a great story to tell as well. So, 
I, I want to transition this to kind of a question about not necessarily like AVAs because they're not they don't have like I think as many production restrictions. It's more just kind of um, like geographical. But you know, when it comes to taking taking products that people are so familiar with, so I think Raj, you're perfect for this. It's like you know you have this you have this product that is Armagnac and it is underappreciated, but but it is it is established in terms of a category. But then you're throwing your little spin on it. You said the purists are obviously anti this direction. But what has the reaction been to people like who maybe are not familiar with Armaniac? Do you think it's been acting as a bridge for, for other spirits? Or what's been the experience like taking an established product, you know, with with you know a geographical designation and putting your own spin on it, your own interpretation on it? Oh, I think that the that the, the reaction has been, you know, very positive. It's been whiskey drinkers overall. I think with the fifty-year-old, um, you didn't get any of the product called twenty-seven oh seven, did you? In the sampler, no. Uh, we'll make sure I'll tell Meg oh, to send you. Oh, I did. Some. I did. Yes, that's uh, that's twenty-seven oh seven right there. Feel free to yeah. send more though. Like, don't don't hold back. It's okay. <laughs> okay. So, so that that twenty-seven oh seven is, I would say, the best. Uh, emblem of this that's Calvados and Armagnac blended together with a little bit of a scotch finish. Okay. And that product is 20 years old to 50 years old in the blend 18 to 49 to be precise. The average age in its lower 20s. So deeply aged product, but you can buy that for 80 bucks, right? So it's an obscene value. It was actually mislabeled. It's a limited edition, but you know, Drew, you'll get a taste of this when your good buddy um, gets it to you. But have you? Did you? Do you have that yet, Chris? I do. I have it in my glass right now. Okay, so this is bright. This is fruity. This has got a little tiny kiss of smoke on it. It's pure innovation. I'm not aware of anybody else having done Calvados and Armagnac as a blend together and then add a little bit of a Scotch finish. It's totally off the charts. The it's a completely new category. The uh, or or blend, but it's delicious. Everybody loves it. The please don't contradict me uh, now, Chris. No, but it's really like it. It won gold in San Francisco. Uh, I mean, you, you said know, you said Calvados and Armagnac and Isla, and I'm sold. So it's fine. And there's three of my favorite things right there. Yeah, you, you you taste it, and and in particular, you get more sweetness in the apple, which is in Calvados, than you do in the Armagnac. And that really works with the quick kiss of the scotch. So whether you're a bourbon drinker, whether you're a scotch drinker, you know, and, and this is very approachable, you know, approachable from a price point, you're getting more than 20 year old average spirit. I mean, this is like something only a thousand cases of this came out. Um, and, you know, it, it fires on every cylinder from a, from a spirit standpoint, very approachable, you know, that's doing beautifully, um, makes the best old fashioned you've ever had the, um, and, and I would say the, the 50 year olds more esoteric, right? I mean, it's a, it's a four or $500 bottle. The, it sells very well. And I think that's mostly going to people who are into deep age statement products and collectors and, um, you know, connoisseurs, the, but it's people who are looking for it. This, the 2707 Bacta is something that, 
you know, you can pick up every day and it gives you an example of like what spirit can, uh, what innovation can, can taste like. And I'll, I'll, I'll end here. I talk about age all the time, but you know, imagine there's two spirits and both of them taste equally good. One is 10 years and which is when another one's 20 years old. I want to drink the 20 year old because there's more history in it. It's waited longer. I know there's something, there's something, I don't know, inherently uh, more precious about it, but somebody took the time and discipline to set it aside. And, you know, truth be told, it's not going to taste exactly the same as a, as a 10 year, no matter what, it's going to be a new one. So Chris, what do you think of that 2707? You know, I was, as I was tasting through, well, well, uh, you guys were rambling on there. I, uh, I was blown away by how fruity it was. And I didn't realize that it had Calvados, uh, for our listeners, Calvados is a, is an apple brandy from, from Normandy, uh, in France. Um, and I was clearly different in all the skews. And now that you're saying that it obviously is a different spirit, it explains why I think this is very special. This is a really, a really lovely spirit. Um, I, it, I laugh when you say, or I chuckle when you say that it's it, pure innovation because for Drew and I, innovation usually looks like, okay, what flavor are we adding to this? You know, what, how can we, how can we repackage this? Uh, you know, what eye rolling concept is, is coming out of, you know, a marketing firm out of New York city. That's so far out of touch with, at what booze actually is your version of innovation is like, Hey, how can we take these multiple dope things and throw them into a cask and hope that it works? And in this case, it worked. It's beautiful. The, I I'd say that's an example basically of, of using, thank you, Chris. The, I think that that's an example of using, you know, different kinds of spirit, all real. Again, Bakta, we never use any, color, any sugar, any, anything. Those are, you know, verboten. The never. Um, and it's amazing what you can do with just really good spirit, age, different types of wood, you know, doing it the old fashioned way and, you know, creating something new for the spirits drinker. That's great value. That's the other thing that like, I mean, people don't go out and say, I want to go. I, I love value. I love buying things that are that are that I'm not overpaying for. I don't need to like show up. Oh, look, I bought a bottle of whatever Johnny Walker blue label because everybody knows it's an expensive bottle. But to actually have something that the qualities inside the there on 2707, for example, that's, you know, you can buy all day long at 80 bucks and it's uh, it's special. It's very drinkable um, across for a, a wide variety of spirits. It's limited. Only a thousand cases will ever be released of that, and I'll be quiet now. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, so no, on the on the topic of AVA, um, as we're discussing uh, Armagnac, Armagnac itself has has multiple uh, AVAs in there. Uh, well, not AVAs, but different viticulture areas. Uh, the first A for everybody is American, so obviously that doesn't apply here um is is this armagnac located within the boz or is it located uh is the is the farm elsewhere the the it's mostly boz armagnac but we have some uh tenores really like when you have a cellar as vast and deep as us we have 
it will have been from probably over in our collection over a thousand different producers uh, in the in the you know in the 150 different vintages uh, that we have. But uh, primarily, I'd say a slight majority is going to be from Bazar Mignac, the central hey. reason, more clay soil. For, for for those of you who are unfamiliar with with Armagnac, Boz Boz is to Armagnac what um, uh, Jalisco is to tequila. It's 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 the predominant region where where a lot of the Armagnac really really stems from. Uh, it's it's hard in the United States to find Armagnac from out outside that region, which is what always piques my curiosity, Raj. I'm just always always searching, always like just poking and, 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 and finding, seeing where things so come this, from. The 1984 yeah. uh, is, uh, is a Tenerez, oh, which is a different awesome. uh, region. Well, and, and that's literally the first uh, time I think I've ever had a Tenerez then let's, uh, let's do it. Okay. So um, I want to move on to our next story because it's, uh, I, I know we're getting a little long here and I want to make sure that we still get to this. And of course it don't follow. So, Chris, hit the music for me. Wrong one. My bad. That, that was the wrong one. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Uh. Amateur hour out here. Okay, so then, so the next article was uh, from you know one of our favorite sources, which is Vine Pair, and they're talking about the American brandy revolution and some ones that they brought up was like Laird's apple brandy, the Germain Romaine coming out of California. Um, I don't want to get too much into those ones because obviously we're sitting and talking with somebody who is going to be making brandy here in the States. Um, so, and one of the other ones that I did that I kind of want to, in a weird way, tie this in. One of the things that we keep coming back to in this conversation is education, right? And how do you educate the the masses on this brand that's been around that has this incredible history, but still doesn't have its place here? Now, people have done that through brand ambassadors. People do that through virtual tastings. People come on other people's podcasts to talk about stuff. But Raj, you've been taking it a step further and you went and bought yourself a college in Vermont, (laughs) um, which the headline alone is so insane. But you, you know, unfortunately, over the last couple of years, you know, a lot of people you know, have gone out of business for lack of financing and stuff like that. You came in and you bought Green Mountain College um, in Pulteney, Vermont, with the idea that you want to create this kind of education system where people are educated on this on this industry that we're currently in. And this is something that means a lot to Chris and I. Uh, we're constantly promoting different types of education, exposing yourself to different types of um, different levels of this, whether it's being a producer, brand ambassador, you know, importer, whatever the case may be. Where are you guys at with that, with that, you know, project? And how do you see it playing a role in this American brandy revolution? So the uh drew though so this is this is going into like i education is the way you can have an influence on the future and in 
my, I mean, I don't say my opinion. I guess we all know that there's something deeply flawed with higher education in America, right? We're turning out a bunch of graduates who are borrowing a whole bunch of money to produce degrees that don't make them any money. Like if you get a, you know, you get a marketing degree or whatever. I mean, that's, that's, they're kind of dime a dozen. You can have a quarter million dollars in debt to do that. So the, the, we're not producing um, graduates that are relevantly educated and, and, and they're deeply in debt and they're becoming depressed as a consequence because the opportunity is not there. So here you have a trillion dollar industry overall, the beverage alcohol business globally, that has no educational institution associated with it. So what we are doing, and for example, I have four people, it's small, but it's the beginning, who are going through a summer intensive program that we have not opened this up. This is our kind of um, uh, internal internal training program right now. Mm -hmm. And we go through soup to nuts, the this industry this business which starts with the dirt and growing the product and tending the vines or you know planting the rye or the corn um and through to harvest the uh uh uh, regenerative utilization of the land through distillation through selecting of the wood through packaging and bottling, through distribution, sales and marketing. Basically, everything that goes into this business, we're in, I'm fully vertically integrated, right? I'm a big believer in that. We operate over a thousand acres of farmland. So while I source, and I'm also a deep believer in sourcing because a lot of people have a lot of great you know, juice out there. And if you want to start something old, go ahead and buy it. But back into it if you're doing it, if you're in this business seriously. And that starts with farming. And that starts with respecting the land and understanding that you reap what you sow, which is also a life lesson, really. The, um, you know, the idea is to then break that into different component parts. So if you wanted to come out and study a section of that, whether it's wood fire distillation, you come out and do an intensive for that in a month. And now you've gone and you know how to operate an ancient Alembic, which by the way is more complicated because anybody can go in and operate one of these big distilleries now. It's a, right. it's a, it's a factory. While they're job. eating McDonald's. Right. Right. And a Slurpee. <laughs> the, the, um, the, it's not good. It's unhealthy. Um, <laughs> the, the, it's uh, comprehensively not good. I guess it's good in producing highly large quantities of cheap uniform spirit. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. The, the, I mean that. The but, you know, this is kind of a different way of like really the ethos of everything that goes into it. And now then we study that, you know, creating the product, creating a great product is tough itself, but it's not half as tough as actually marketing that product. Right. So, you know, figure out what area of the business or distribution or operating a retail shop, whether it's whether it's, you know, where there's opportunity stocking. All this. So we're putting that we're putting that together. The, the training process is beginning like for my own sales force. And we're trying to impart a lot of information and values, right? Um, like hard work and dedication, which is something that, that we need to re-up on as a civilization, the, as a society, as a country. The, um, because without that, you can't produce a great product. The, whether that's selling a great product, making a great product, building a successful career, you name it. The, um, 
kind of utilizing this college campus that we have a classic, beautiful New England college campus to make it a place where, you know, the lights of all the good things that go into one of this most ancient uh, 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 professions of man that has no real, you know, uh, codified uh, study program associated with it. I don't know if it's a long answer. I don't know if I answered your question. You know, uh, what this uh, reminds me of is uh, in 1864, when the very first uh, cocktail book was published, uh, there was a lot of uh, hubbub about it. Dr. Jerry Thomas uh, was a very loud and boisterous man who made up a lot of stories about himself. Uh, but more so the fact that he broke the secrets of how to mix a cocktail that didn't come with, uh, three years of internship and bar backing and, you know, six years of learning how to, uh, uh, you know, move barrels around the back room and, and price everything out and where to source things from. Um, when that happened, the industry as an entirety shifted i mean it was cataclysmic and then year after year after year more cocktail books started hitting hitting uh you know publishers started moving into the general uh you know zeitgeist that is you know american bar scene as we know it today uh having an institution like this that that offers people a glimpse into what it is i can see as being really you know because there, there are a handful of educational opportunities out there. I mean, out, out here in, in California, we have uh, what we have the Y Institute. We have and San Luis Obispo, and you guys a good, good program in Y, yeah. right? And out there, you've got Johnson Wales, right? That has a, a pretty extensive uh, sommelier and hospitality um, course direction, uh, but nothing really uh, like you're saying, hands on with you know agriculture with learning learning how to distill in even in our industry, especially in our industry, the concept of education oftentimes gets poo pooed, right? I mean, just look at the reputation of bartending schools, the amount of people who just shit on bartending schools and oftentimes for very, very good reason, but there are a handful of really legitimate ones out there. In fact, I've taught a lot of people when I was a, I was an instructor at bartending school who've moved on to, represent multinational brands and uh they get very tiptoed around me because they don't want me to reveal their secrets that they started off at a bartending school hey what do you think are good quickly while you talk what are good bartending schools what are a couple of the good ones that you recommend? well so the one the one that i uh used to work work for was the san francisco school of bartending um and it it is now defunct um one of my co-workers though uh from their went off and started um oh my gosh we work with her um uh, cocktail uh cocktail camp is she has she does little classes here and there and i've i've taught some classes for her as well but uh my store uh operates as sort of like a a, a retail third party for her so we're able to like ship things out and she does some some great classes in education and you know corporate team building stuff but on the East Coast there, uh, um, I've got a, a friend, uh, Peter, who I, he, he has several, several schools there on the on on the East Coast. And I 
can't remember what they're called, but uh, I'll, I'll get that to you at a later date. He he does a really yeah, marvelous job. I want to I want to I want to I want to work with somebody over here and doing something like that uh, on campus. It's a piece of the program that I want to fill out. He does he does a really marvelous job um, of educating, and honestly, uh, my time spent at, uh, educating. Uh, I I left the school as the lead instructor after like four years of being there. Um, that skill set of learning how to teach has has done me so so well over the course of my career because I've never stopped educating, um, and it's that alone is a yeah, skill, even if people is don't want to listen. You know, they tell him to stop. He keeps talking. He keeps talking. It's just <laughs> you know, just, just sheer persistence. I, <laughs> I, I I think uh, we're in a uh, uh, like minded like minded crew here. Yeah, no, I. I'm excited about it. I mean, I think the, you know, obviously with with everything that like the court of sommeliers has been dealing with over the past two years and all the inherent issues and just how a lot of stuff, because um, I know I've looked into different programs and, and one of the ones that I always struggle with is that there's not a lot of flexibility within them, right? Whereas like spirits even when they do have a long history there's this there's a series of evolution that still occurs with them and i feel like with some of these more established organizations that are coming out with things it's like it's it's almost to a point where you're like well you're not changing you're not adapting to this ever evolving industry um you know mezcal is a really great example of this like what we thought we knew 5 years ago actually turned out to not really be the case at all and it was because well, we started. What's an example of that, Drew? Well, just talking like like something like a like a tepestate. So a tepestate agave for the longest time was thought to be you know twenty five to thirty years old. That's how long it took to mature. Well, now that we're starting to pay attention, it's like listen, in the right environment where people are doing this level of like semi cultivation. I mean, they're having tepestate reach the right level of maturity at ten years old. You know, and if you think about it, like so many of the conversations that I had on early was like, oh, well, why do you do that? It's like, oh, because that's how grandpa did it or that's how grandma did it. And that's why we do it. And then I remember one time it took me three years to find out how long it how long it would typically take for a quiote to spring from an agave. And the reason it took so long is because most of the time when I would ask the question of producers, I'd be like, well, why do you need to know that? I was like, I don't need to know that. I just want to know that. So having education programs that are flexible and knowing that things are, that things are changing. I mean, you know, mezcal and agave, just Mexican spirits in general are so complicated. And as we continue to learn and we get to new explore stuff, I mean, this world is, is smaller than ever. Right. I mean, and I, I remember looking at a uh, like one of those wine indexes from 2001 and it has this really tiny section on Georgian wine and it was like this area has this really amazing history of wine production but it's been so ravaged by the Soviet Union that they just there's everything that's coming out of it right now is industrial and it's not a good indication fast forward 20 years later and it's this and it's a region that Although it has an 8,000 year history of production, it's really brand new again. And those books, even books that came out in 2010, are, are already outdated. You know, like one of my 
you know, favorite, favorite Mezcal books, which even is already on its second edition is already outdated. You know, it's like, that's how rapid this stuff is changing. And so when I approach people about WSEC, cause we've had, we've had people reach out to us and be like, Hey, well, you know, if you guys want to do the certification, we can have you skip, you know, WSET level one, because that's, cause you guys already know more than what that level you know requires. Like, well, that's still a thousand dollar class, right? So you're telling me that there's this value, but like just on my own, I've learned enough to not even have to worry about that level of it, but there's still, you know, a higher cost, especially in our industry where, you know, a thousand dollars, of course, you know, people can make that in a single night on the bartending end, but it's like, it's where it's, it's changed. Well, I'm just like nightclubs (laughs) and things like that. Sign me up, baby. I'm ready to go. Uh, we got there's a couple couple. Uh, I was thinking the same thing. Like, yeah. Let's go. Okay, fine. Two, over a weekend. Let's say over a weekend. We'll make it more practical over the weekend. Go get some cash, baby. Uh, yeah. So I I do want to give him a shout out just because we were talking about him. Uh, Peter Lloyd Clayton. I'm sorry about uh, not remembering your last name, brother. Uh, bartendersacademy.com. Bartenders Academy um, on on the East Coast. There he uh, he has. I've known the man for. Probably twelve years, if not more, man. Damn, Peter, I've known you for a long ass time. We're both old. Um, he has been very, very diligent in educating himself and reaching out and talking to other educators in the industry, so that way he can better serve and and put out a more honest and more productive product than like, oh man, there's like Bar Academy of America or some shit like that. That's just put like teaches everybody out of like the, the, um, the black bar Bible and just doesn't, doesn't actually teach a good, a good class, a good, doesn't pump out good students who really actually know how to operate in this, in this industry. Uh, so Peter's on the other end of that spectrum where he really cares. And every single person who graduates from there is like a, is a reflection on him. Nice. That's great. All right, let's 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 move it on to my favorite section. You know who's dope? Them over there. All right, so now time for our dope follows uh, segment, and this is where we're going to tell you who you guys should be checking out. This could be an Instagram account, another podcast, movie, shows, books, whatever the case is. We just think that these are people with either in our industry or outside our industry that we think are dope, that you should think are dope too, Raj. Who should people check out that you enjoy their content, their their vibe, whatever the case may be? I I love since we were talking about so much uh, history with these old Armagnacs. I think that um, I think that I recommend you know getting a bottle of a Bacta vintage or the fifty year old and listening to Dan Carlin. Um, I I think hardcore the podcast- history. Hardcore history. I love that podcast. Yes. That's something, you know, pick any different, whether it's the Pacific theater and, you know, with the older, like I like combining vintages and listening to history. So you're literally tasting that year and those events with, you know, listening to what's going on there. I think that's an unparalleled experience. I'm very confident in my recommendation. That's I think that's a great recommendation. As someone who, who also loves hardcore history, it's like one of those things that, so, you know, it doesn't come out with any level of consistency, right? But when it does come out, I'm like, shit, I, the next two weeks, this is the only thing I'm listening to. All of my other content falls by the wayside. And I, and, and this might exist out there, 
but I would love to see the behind the scenes with him because it's like, what does that recording look like? And and you really do have to listen to an episode to understand it. But like he takes these events throughout history and there's like, we talk about like getting into the weeds with stuff. I mean, he is on a microscopic level with it. And I love the fact that you brought that up because it has been a while since he's released one. So um, I could see why you would dig it so much because it really is such an, every time he picks a different topic, it's such an incredible deep dive. And I definitely want to pair that with some ancient Armagnac now as well. That that's fucking yeah. That's a great one. Uh, Chris, who's your don't follow? Uh, mine is uh, Instagram uh, cocktailer. Uh, her name is Chloe Mers. It's at Chloe Mertz. C-H-L-O-E-M-E-R-Z. Uh, she does a really beautiful job with uh, with cocktail, cocktail photography, and uh, really has a very, very clean, very orchestrated um, Instagram account. It's just, it's, it's great mixed with uh, uh, drawings, art, and and the photography. She does a really great job. Okay, what, what is it? What is it again? Chloe, Chloe Mers, C H uh, L O E M E R Z. Chloe, I have M O R E T Z. You said easy. M O R. M E R Z. Got it. Okay. Nice. I like it. Um, and then, so mine is actually like a blending of two worlds um, that I love. And it is going to be a uh, actual former defensive back in the NFL, Will Blackman. He has gotten really, really into wine since his retirement. And uh, so he's known as like the NFL wine guy. And he has like an event company that he that he puts on these like luxury experiences with wine throughout the state of California. And I think he does. He probably does it all over the United States. But I've just seen a lot of them have been obviously California focused. Um, but that's at Will Blackman. So it's W-I-L-L-B-L-A-C-K-M-O-N. Just all one word. No periods. Nothing like that. Um, so that that that's my dope follow. I think Will's done some cool stuff and he's actually exposed me to a lot of other cool people doing rad things. So check out his Instagram and it's fun to like think about a guy as one thing. And and it's always, you know, of course with the NFL, like usually when those guys retire, they're like they're like 35, you know? And so if that, if they even get to that, you know, age in the NFL, so to like to, you know, to start over and to reinvent yourself like Will has, I think is really, really super rad. So, uh, so check out Will Blackman. And you know what, guys? I think those are some pretty dope follows. The music for the Good Bottle Podcast is orchestrated by the Moore Brothers and produced pretty darn okay by these two guys. Before we go kill these bottles, Drew's lucky I won't kill these bottles. Uh, that we've been drinking. We ask that if you've enjoyed today's episode, please smash that subscribe button and leave us a five-star review because obviously there's nothing other than a five-star review for us because we're amazing. Yes, you can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at The Good Bottle Podcast or on our personal accounts. Mine is dgarrison6. Chris is Kristen Flair. Raj, where can they find you and your spirits? Uh, how can they reach you? Oh, you got the website, Bakta Brandy, uh, Bakta Spirits, uh... Same thing on Instagram. Um, I don't think I'm like, I'm not, I'm not up on the whole social media thing the way I should be. So 
that's what I got. Okay. Don't, no, no sweat there. I like it. I like it. He's focused on making good stuff and changing the game. That's that's what he's into. I like it. Uh, yeah. If you would like for us to cover a story of working for a brand that would like to be featured, please email us at thegoodbottlepodcast at gmail.com. And as a reminder, you can uh, purchase some of these bottles. Well, we're going to work on that. You guys are self-distributing in California. Uh, but check out thegoodbottleshop.com. And until next time, cheers, guys. You know, like the best part about this is my restraint to not talk about the elephant in the mariachi band. I think that's.